16th century Spain was a country filled with beauty, coming at the height of Christian influence in the West with the Catholic and Protestant Reformations. In this time, Spain had arrived at a golden age of art, literature, and architecture. Imagine walking through the cobblestone streets in central Spain and stopping to admire the royal monastery of San Lorenzo de Escarol, its imposing high white stone walls inlaid with glass, statues of the great saints of the Christian faith overlooking the courtyard of the kings. As you walk into the monastery, your chest tightens at the transcendent beauty of the high altar, where 92-foot arched ceilings stand overhead, adorned with paintings from some of the greatest artists in human history. The altar screen is crafted with the finest red granite and jasper. There, kneeling in humble contrition at the sides of the altar, sit bronze statues of the kings and queens of Spain. As you explore the beautiful marriage of art and architecture, you hear distant echoes of monks chanting in Latin. The chanting quiets as you approach the most solemn chambers of the monastery, the Pantheon of the Kings, where the kings and queens of Spain are laid to rest. The walls of polished Toledo marble are ornamented in gold-plated bronze. Twenty-six marble sepulchers containing the remains of the kings and queens of Spain await the return of Christ to raise them from their long sleep. The Spanish explorers who landed on the coasts of the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico were sent out from this culture. What they found there was so horrifically shocking that for hundreds of years, no one believed them. Modern-day historians assume the Spanish conquistadors had wildly exaggerated the horrors of the Aztec people in order to justify their brutal conquest of the Aztec Empire. The Spanish claimed that display racks containing up to 130,000 human skulls were seen around the Aztec temple. But centuries had gone by without a trace of these supposed horrors. Scholars began to doubt the existence of these temples and macabre displays, believing that it was simply a false report from the Spanish to justify the brutal treatment and extermination of the Aztec people. But in February of 1978, near Mexico City's Metropolitan Cathedral, power company workers were installing an underground transformer. While digging a shallow hole, they uncovered a giant monolith that led to the discovery of the ancient Aztec temple Mayor. Later in 2015, architect Raul Rodriguez received an unexpected phone call. He and his team were invited to excavate a site near the Temple Mayor. Raul knew this could lead to a major discovery. He and his team began their dig in the middle of Mexico City, under the feet of 21 million people. He carefully dug 20 test pits, where like layers of history, he discovered modern debris, then deeper colonial porcelain, and finally the slabs of ancient Mexica period basalt flooring. Imagine having your whole life dedicated to the discovery of a place that had been written off as legend, simply a fable or lie that had been told to cover up past sins. But then your trowel strikes something chalky and off-white. Rock? Basalt? Bone. More bone. 
then hundreds of human skull fragments. Nothing had ever been discovered like it. Remember the tales of horror from the Spanish conquistadors? In describing the worship liturgy of the Aztec priests to their false gods, they told of the enormous appetites of the Aztec gods for human sacrifice atop of Temple Mayor. Their methods of sacrifice were brutal. The priests, with obsidian blades sharper than surgical steel, would cut open the abdomen of the living victim and remove their still-beating heart. They would then sever the head from the body and throw the body down the massive staircase of Temple Mayor, where, at times, they would even cook and consume the body. They would fillet the face from the decapitated head, then punch holes into the side of the skull so it could be hung on numerous rows of horizontal poles that ringed the area. The horrors the Spanish discovered didn't stop there. When rotting skulls fell from the poles, they were fashioned into masks that the people would wear, all of this in an effort to appease their gods. When Raul Rodriguez discovered these skulls, exactly as described by the conquistadors, they realized that there had been no exaggeration. The racks of skulls were row upon row, stacked high, wide, and long with thousands of skulls of men, women, and children side by side. The racks of skulls were 15 feet tall and larger than a basketball court. If a skull was not hung, it would be cemented like bricks into a massive cylindrical pillar. One of the main objectives of the King's Hall is to convince you that you become what you worship. If you worship demon gods of death, you become like them. If you worship bloodthirsty wraiths, you become like them. But what would happen if you worship the one true and living God? What might you become? Imagine a family, a people, a tribe, a nation, a world that worship the Father of lights from whom comes down every good and perfect gift. What might that people become? The King's Hall podcast exists to make self-ruled men who rule well and win the world. In today's episode of the King's Hall podcast, we have a special guest, the Reverend Yuri Brito, pastor of Providence Church, founder of Kyperian Commentary, and board member at Theopolis Institute. A through line that you'll note throughout all of Yuri's work is this conviction that humanity is a worshiping being whose identity will be formed in a totalizing way by that which he worships, and that therefore the only safe grounds from which to build a flourishing human culture is the worship of the God who is the three and one. Steeped in the work and thought of 19th century theologian and political figure Abraham Kuyper, Yuri and his cohorts at Kuyperian Commentary are committed not just to thinking good thoughts, not just having good ideas, but to living those ideas out in obedience to Christ in every part of what it means to be human. Worship shapes men who shape the world, and so it is essential that we get worship right. It's one of the foundational ideas of this season of the King's Hall— as we seek to build a new Christendom from the rich compost of the old. So we're going to go ahead and roll the interview, and the first thing that you'll hear is going to be Yuri's answer to Eric's question, why is worship central to the rebuilding of culture? The Bible begins with acts of worship. Um, the book of Genesis says that Adam communed with God. 
that Adam functioned as a priest unto God. Uh, we see the garden takes on the shape of an initial temple. It has all the ingredients that we're going to later see in the worship of Israel. Um, Adam was called to offer his life as a servant of God in the house of God for the sake of the name of God, the Creator. Uh, in fact, even the first event after the fall, you may remember in Genesis 4, was, was a dispute about proper worship between Cain and Abel. Mm. The first thing that Noah does after the ark, uh, let's call it after the ark Sabbaths or rests on the mountain, is to offer worship to God. So, so worship is written all over the scriptures as the act you do, uh, not only in the old world, but in the new world and in every other world in between. It's, it's the way that God uh, enculturates culture for the Christian. Th there's no other way that that happens. Yeah, I think that's so huge. And, and so when you're thinking about you know, something like how people vote on Roe v. Wade, where we are culturally, um, and you see a problem like you know, there's a lot of Christians on Twitter who are saying right now, you know how you vote? on this issue doesn't really matter. We can all worship. We can all be together. Um, how would what we do in worship, how would that cause us to respond differently to that person? So I think it's important to sort of distinguish between uh, worship broadly, uh, uh, broad rituals, broad practices, and worship in particular. Specific rituals, specific practices. The best way to phrase it, Eric, is the church worships in particular so that she can worship broadly. So in worship, the way I, f I phrase it in the past is to worship is to commune with God in conversation. It's a dialogue. So God speaks and we respond. We respond and God speaks back to us. It's a groom and bride union of thought and life. It's this continual conversation. And so cultures are shaped by a variety of things. They're shaped by symbols, but primarily cultures are shaped by conversations. And because the Christian's primary way of thinking about life is through worship, which is a conversation, therefore the way we do worship in our conversation is going to shape the conversations of culture. And, and my argument is that only true conversations can shape worship, uh, can shape culture. Cultures are shaped by one conversation or another. It's, it's, um, it's not a neutral endeavor. It can be influenced by uh, the conversations between heaven and earth, between God and man, or the conversations between man and man, which, which as we know, offer just no transcendent guidance, but only uh, you know, the kind of sort of secularized verbiage that cannot be self-sustaining long-term. So this is where we need to put on our Solomonic wisdom and, and think this through here, because it is true that the conversations between Marx and Hegel, the conversations between secularists, uh, man uh, and man, provide a an initial uh, sustenance. It provides some kind of initial substance. It allows people to uh, offer certain uh, cultural motivations to keep that system going, but. Only the Christian conversation, because it is grounded in eternal categories, only that conversation can provide self-sustaining, long-term, covenantal categories to take culture in the trajectory it needs to, to go. Yeah, I think that's a really fantastic point. One of the other things I think is when you look at, say, Reformed worship, um, you look at what was happening in Geneva, and you look at the kind of culture that produced. Okay, so there's a connection there. But I want to look at our culture today, 
And, and and you look at you know even things like Chris Tomlin songs versus singing the Psalms, you know th- th- that's producing a different kind of culture. My question is, what happened? I guess in church history over the last 150, 200 years, that we got sort of a light slapstick worship, and then now we've got a culture uh, that is similar. What happened church history to to bring that about? That's that's a really good question. You know, there's a sociologist by the name of. Uh, George Ritzer, I think, and he talks about the McDonaldization of uh, of culture, and of course, it's he, it, the, the principles oh, here. What he's applying specifically to is sort of the principles of the fast food market, sort of applied to society at large, fast, quick uh, cigarette consumption, right? But when that term uh, is applied to the church's life, what that means is that the church, the church life is McDonaldized. And so it's privatized. It's a quick fix faith rather than discipleship or apprenticeship in the Christian community. And what it does, unbeknownst to those who are partakers of it, what it does is it diminishes, I think this is the language of Eugene Peterson, it diminishes the long obedience in the right direction. So so that church uh, comes packaged for fast consumption, and uh, even as I'm thinking of that, I'm thinking about the little grape juice and, and uh, wafer sort of, you know, easy consumption <laughs> yes. that people have used through COVID. So you sit down on Sunday morning with your latte purchase at the upstairs coffee shop, and, and then you consume the service like you would consume a theater experience with your, you know, butter popcorn and your extra, extra size soda. So what you have done, uh, Eric, is you have essentially industrialized church uh, to make us feel at ease with the experience of worship, uh, to the point, and you know this, you've seen this as well, to the point where the live stream service is so live that as long as you keep tithing, you're going to be perfectly okay with staying home on Sunday. So, you know, sit for 45 minutes, make business context to extend your professional career as it's happening, and then leave your faith at the exit door, and then uh, see you at the buffet line. But that kind of that kind of uh, easy consumption is made and tailored for American worship consumerism. And nothing in this model you know, resembles, approaches, or even nears the kind of robust biblical faith of our Hebrew and early church forefathers. Whether uh, It doesn't matter how it's phrased either, by the way. It doesn't matter how cool it looks. Whether it's phrased with a kind of rationale for evangelism or uh, gospel-centeredness, However it's phrased, it ultimately ends up like a fast food line and a fast consumption experience. For the project of this season to be successful, the project of seeing a new Christendom built, there will need to be thousands and thousands of Christian men and women who are equipped to stand for the truth of Scripture against the errors of both the liberal church and the pagan culture. This is one reason we're so glad to be partnering with our sponsor for this season, Reformation Heritage Books. Reformation Heritage Books offers a large selection of helpful and theologically rigorous resources on everything from biblical theology to history to blue-collar family discipleship, the type of library and resources that could make the kind of men and women I just described grounded in the rich heritage of the Reformed faith. We'd like to highlight one resource in particular, their Family Worship Bible Guide, that presents rich devotional thoughts on all 1,189 chapters of the Bible, including searching questions to promote conversation and to help you in leading your family in such a way as to say with Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. 
Tap the link in the description of this episode to pick one up today. Oh, man, that's so true. And uh, one of the things I know personally for me, uh, so I, I kind of in college was going to baptist style yeah. churches, some mega churches in there. Uh, some of those were charismatic. And then I remember at some point I went to Bill Smith's church in Louisville. And uh, first of all, I walked in. So this is, you know, the time it was just totally yeah. foreign to me. I walk in and I'm like, why is Bill dressed like a Catholic <laughs> priest? I have no idea what's happening here. And then we're going through the worship service and... I'm like, well, how do I follow worship? And somebody hands me what is like a phone book, uh, what what seemed like a phone book at least to me at the time. So it's you, you've got this thing that you got to follow along with, and, and it shocked me. It was a shock to the system. Like you had to participate. They're chanting, they're singing, uh, the Gloria, all this stuff is in there. So we go to one worship service, and I said to my wife, I said that was the most bizarre thing that I've ever been a part of. I said I'm never doing that again. And I remember I went home and I told my mother-in-law, I said, it was so weird, and I'm explaining it. And she goes, well, that sounds kind of oh. cool. She's like, well, maybe you should just, try, just yeah. try it again. Just at least go twice, you know? Well, we went twice and then became, you know, eventually part of the CREC and all those things. Uh, but one of the things I think Jim Jordan has said before is that worship is supposed to be other. It's supposed to be different than what you get in the consumer experience in the American culture. So I guess for a minute, just talk to me about what is this covenant renewal worship? That's a word that's been used to describe it. What is it in, in some of its specifics, and how is that different than what people would generally experience in church today? Jim Jordan uh, talks about how the incense of worship, even the, the the quote smell of worship, ought to be different. And the principle is, is larger here. The principle is that the experience you have on a Sunday morning ought to be different than your experiences from Monday through Saturday. And so the experience of the liturgy, liturgy simply means the, the work of the people, the experience of the work of the people on Sunday morning um, has to be an experience that transcends time and biblically uh, transcends locations. Uh, Paul says that we're, we're raised into heavenly places. So that in itself reorders the imagination of the Christian on Sunday morning. And so if worship doesn't do that, it makes sense why it would be viewed as a fast consumption exercise. However, if worship does everything that Paul says it does, if it takes us to the heavenly places by the power of the Spirit, if worship is communion with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven and all the church on earth, if worship is a service where we sit at the table and our host is Jesus the Christ, the risen, the ascended Lord. If it is, at the very least, Eric, 25% of that, then everything we do on Sunday morning is going to be different and is going to shake up your experience like it did yours and it did mine the first time we uh, indwelt that kind, of, uh, that kind of life. And so the, the most... I can phrase it, the most beautiful rhythms of our lives, and you said it so well, and so um, a, a hearty a cheers for your mother-in-law, but the most beautiful <laughs> rhythms of our lives were developed through persistence, but we have yeah. grown to believe that life needs to be sort of you know dramatic and unpredictable, that we need a, a cycle of shock and all to get us through, but the common is the thing that shapes our experiences. We are made to be not so much homo sapiens, but homo 
adorans. We are liturgical creatures. We are worshiping creatures because God created a world of order from the very beginning. He created uh, seasons. Uh, he established time to guide our rhythms. He offered the world as a gift of six and one, a gift of work and Sabbath, a gift of labor and leisure. And the things we do, and you know this as well, uh, as uh, the things we do that shape the most our imagination are the repetitive acts. And in fact, human beings live, we live, you know, modern evangelists won't say this, but we live as if there's a, a happy expectation of repetition. Nobody, I mean, imagine this, nobody yeah. lives constantly in surprise mode, you know? That would, you just, you just have a stroke if, if, if everything you're expecting was a surprise. <laughs> yeah. So liturgy shapes our rhythms and rituals, and that's why it's so different and so shocking for uh, many of us in the evangelical culture who sort of just have this expectation of, of um, having their desires constantly surprised. Yeah, and it's such a good point. I mean, I, I, even something that you mentioned, liturgy being the work of the people, um, that was something that changed where when I would go to worship before, it was like there was a band on stage and there were lights and smoke machines, and I was basically a spectator. And then like going and realizing like, I'm going to have to sing here. Like, I'm going to have to participate. You know, I've got to say the portion of the psalm back uh, you know, as the 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 pastor's leading, you know, and all this stuff is, you know, raising hands. It's incorporating your whole body. It, and one of the interesting things I think it brings up is you're talking about these elements in the worship, uh, in the worship service. So you know, confession, communion, uh, ascension, all of it, um, absolution. What I saw happening in my life over time was, as I was repeating these things in worship, they became expected. They became habitual. It was that in my daily life, like, you know, I'd sin against a brother, and I'm like, well, what do we do? Well, there's confession, there's absolution. So it's like, I mean, it actually became ingrained in the pattern of the rest of life as well. Um, one of the questions I want to ask, though, is a lot of times people will say to me, yeah, but liturgy is hard. Like, learning the liturgy is hard. Learning how to worship as the people of God is hard. And one of those things would be like singing psalms. It, it's harder than standing there listening to a, you know— we called them 7-11 songs, you know, seven words repeated 11 times. Um, it's a lot harder. So what would your encouragement be to people? Say they come to your church, they experience it, they say, you know, Pastor Yuri, this is, this is hard. How would you encourage them that it's worthwhile? Well, the first thing I'd say is good. If someone comes to my congregation from your, your local megachurch and they say, man, this was uh, fantastic, I'm often skeptical to tell the truth. Because I want <laughs> yeah. them to see the radical transition from a world where things are spontaneously created, right? Uh, a world where th things uh, come into being that have not been thought through, and then a world where things have had this this um, this aroma of preparation. Everything mm. that happens, and you, you, you gave some indication of this, that we call the five C's of covenant renewal, uh, which is you know the yeah. call, the confession, the consecration, the communion, and the commissioning. And you come into that worship environment, and suddenly it's hard for you because you've been trained to think about these categories scattered throughout, if at all. But now you're being retrained 
as Walter Brueggemann says, you're being reoriented into a liturgy of expectation, into a liturgy of repetition, into a liturgy that keeps you no longer as a passive engager, but an active engager to, uh, through and through. You, you mentioned this as well. You know, the difference between the passive worship experience of the local megachurch and the difference between the active experience in your local congregation, uh, in you know, whatever tradition it is, the difference is that there's no room for individuality to blossom. There's only room for the corporate experience so that you know, my little, my youngest is four, year, four years old, so that my little four-year-old looks at what's happening when we raise our hands for the Gloria and says, this is what's expected of me and everybody else. So there's no room for the individual to sort of blossom with his uh, privatized, McDonaldized worship experience. And all of that now is shifted into a corporate expression that prior was not a part of his involvement. And so that's why worship is a conversation, because there is this responsorial element of the worship experience that, whereas before, was a one-way street. Prior, it was a monologue. Now it's a dialogue between God and man. And that ought to be hard, but the good kind of hard, you know? And so when, when, you, talk, uh, when you talk about the Psalter, that's a whole different level of hard. But I want you to Anyway, your thoughts there. Follow up on that if you don't mind. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly true. I was thinking about it. Uh, so we have psalm sing on Tuesday Wonderful. nights. And so one of the things we have to do, uh, as you're saying, like you have to practice. You have to get better at it. Um, anything worthwhile is going to be hard to some Correct. extent. Um, but one of the things I loved, we have a family who uh, one child is adopted from the foster program, and they have a new child. So I think four and two. And they can't even speak words, but, you know, very few. And very few intelligible words. But what I love, so we're standing there, we're singing the doxology, and the child who's been in the home longer is raising her hands, and she turns and looks at the the, the new child to the foster home and grabs his hands and raises <laughs> them. And I was like, man, it was so moving, you know, because it's, it's this understanding of, like, this is what we're doing, and you're a part of this now, and so respond appropriately. Um, it also makes me think of something, I think it's Henry Van Til said that culture is religion externalized. And so one of the things about that that strikes me is if, if we want our culture to be different, fundamentally what we have to do in worship is retrain our affections. Um, one of the things that I was, I, I never would have thought about this this way prior, but Bill would say, especially like you get to uh, absolution of sin, and Bill would say, how you feel right now is not the important thing. The important thing is what Jesus says about you. And I, I just became so acutely aware in that moment, I need to train my affections according to what God says and not come in here saying, well, this is me, you know, trying to emote my way through the, immer- uh, you know, through the worship service, basically. So I guess if you would for a moment talk about that aspect of retraining the affections of the heart so that we go out in culture and, w- and we create the things that we love, but they're the right things. Yeah, that's uh, that's terrific. You know, we talk about worship and we we view it through categories of spirituality. But the Bible yeah. says that we are to worship in spirit and truth. And so truth brings about this uh ritualized component which um essentially means you when you're retraining yourself in worship, what you're doing is you're not just retraining your spirit, 
you're also retraining your actions. You're retraining your body. Hmm. You're retraining. I mean, think about this: tithes and offerings. Okay, we got an uh, we got an ethics of of economy in the church, which is translated into culture. Um, you think about confession, okay? You have an ethics of reconciliation happening. We're training ourselves to relate to other human beings with whom we don't get along well with at times. Think about the call of worship. At that point, we're retraining what it means to be in the presence of others, what it means to be called, what it means to receive, what it means to give gifts. When we're talking about the element of consecration, it's we're, we're talking about um, how a minister preaches to us. Well, that also translates into culture because we're talking about how we receive information, how we receive data from culture, how we look through our social media feed, and how we sort of embody that and respond appropriately to it. And then when we talk about commissioning, the same principle apply. God is commissioning us to go into the world. So we're taking the blueprint of heaven that I refer to as worship. That's what it is, the blueprint of heaven. And then we're taking from the Mount of Transfiguration. And now we're saying, let's go back down where the Pharisees and Sadducees are eager to get into debates with us. And so how are we going to take that blueprint of heaven and now apply it to our sphere of our earthly domain. And so that is um, a little bit, that requires a, an adjustment in orientation, but it also means uh, that worship changes our imagination in various ways, unbeknownst to us, right? Unbeknownst to us. If our tithing is our offerings and our tributes, well, that's going to shape our benevolence and charity. Whereas often we're used to viewing that whole, quote, transaction as a one-way transaction. No, no, the things we're doing in worship on Sunday morning is training our bodies and our souls, our souls and our bodies. It's a holistic endeavor from the call to the commission. And that's what I think is missing from the modern evangelical ethos that doesn't view worship through the lens of the, the shaping of imagination, desires, and longings. What are we longing for? What are we desiring when we leave worship on Sunday morning? We're desiring that the heavenly experience we've had in an hour, an hour 15, an hour 30, be translated into the, the ethos of culture and that it affects what happens in the halls of Washington, D.C., and that it affects what happens in uh, you know mom's kitchen at 6 p.m. Oh, man, yeah, that's so huge. Uh Yuri, I want to ask you uh, now about family. So family is another important part of worship and, and culture creation. Obviously, you know, the way God has structured the covenants is, is, is through households and families. Um, how does that play into worship and culture creation with what you do with your family, I guess, is part of this question. And I guess if you would just tie it to, like, what does that actually look like on a daily basis, say, for you and your family? How are you creating a liturgy for your family, and then how does that translate to the culture of your family? Let me put a plug for a book that I edited um, many, many years ago, and it was called The Church-Friendly Family, and it uh, contains essays mm. from uh, Rich Lusk and Randy Booth and a lengthy introductory essay from myself, and I think it's being republished by uh, Covenant Media Press soon, So, but I tackle a lot of these issues there, and the other writers do as well. I think we have been trained to think of the life of the church as merely the kind of life that adds weight to the life of the family. And what I've tried to do is to say that the life of the family does not have any weightiness to it apart from the central life of the church. So that on Sunday morning, we typically view the Sunday morning experience as the cumulative effect of 
several households being put together. And I want to change that language, mm. Eric. I want to say that what happens on Sunday morning, just to quote my, uh, my mentor, Peter Lightheart, what happens on Sunday morning is that at that point, there's a transformation of familial and household realities. We're now being incorporated into a larger family than our own households. So that um, my son mm. Ezekiel looks at his friend across, uh, you know, the other side of, uh, of church as his brother, as his heavenly participant, as somebody who is united to him in a task that's greater than himself. And so once we get that perspective right, and we see the sort of the centrality, the liturgical expression in shaping our familial habits, then I think we can talk about family practices. And uh, I've thought about this quite a bit over the years because there's a lot of interest in uh, developing the concept of the oikos in our society. And um, it's true that as the family goes, so goes the culture. But when the family is separated from the life of the church, which is, which is the true life of the headquarters of heaven, the family cannot fulfill its task. So as we have seen through COVID, um, families that stay together on Sunday morning at home do not stay together throughout their lives in the ecclesiastical affair. When you think about hmm. when, when you think about life in the longevity of the experience of a father-son, for example, when you think about that kind of life, the father that doesn't train his son at home in the rituals of church, that father will eventually lose his son to other rituals which means the son is going to be looking for other rituals to uh, stabilize him. And he'll find it very quickly, by the way. He'll find it. So the home needs to be the household. I'm talking about the, the biological expression where you and your wife and your children live. That home needs to be a place shaped by the productivity of church. Church is to be a productive experience. The home needs to be a productive experience, which is how I understand interpret sort of Proverbs 31 as the home being shaped by the bride of Christ as a productive experience. If you, as a dad, if you're trying to leave a piece of Christendom behind for your children to pick up and keep building, then productivity in the household is going to be very key. And what that means is going to entail that you need a family that is committed to the principle of productivity. You need mom to be on the same page. You need Ezekiel. You need Johnny. You need everybody to be on the same page. We're going to be a productive home. You need a wife that is committed to see a bigger picture than merely what she's doing. She, a wife is not merely doing dishes in the home. A wife is saving civilization while she's doing dishes in the home. <laughs> uh, you know, P.J. O'Rourke said, uh, everybody wants to change the world, but nobody wants to help mama with the dishes. And yeah, that's, that's kind of right. the reality. This is a, a, a community project, and mom needs to see these things. It's my job as a pastor. It's your job to encourage our wives and mothers to see their role as much greater. So, so here's the principle, and I just want to um, leave with this, because I think this is a sort of a forgotten uh, piece of this puzzle here. When things pick up in traffic in the home, that is when opportunities to serve, opportunities to grow are all over the place, right? The family is becoming more productive, and the more productive you are, the more opportunities will show up. The general strategy in our society among families is to shrink down our blueprint. So if we have seven things we do, now what we really need to do is only one thing so that we don't get too overwhelming. 
to overwhelm. So guys, let's do less, right? But what if the helpful thing is to strategize the things that are good, the things that are better, and the things that are best? In other words, what if the way to move is to build more strategically, to say no to lesser projects and yes to more efficient projects? Family units need to function like that. And I have five kids. Um, The more kids you have, the more strategic mom and dad have to be. So so here's a, a prime example in the uh, area of, uh, let's say, devotional life, right? I have, uh, I've been doing this for 14 years as a, as a senior pastor, so I, I deal with this all the time. And often, when I hear very uh, enthusiastic fathers, they build these kinds of romantic notions of offering the family a night with this grandiose Spurgeon-esque devotions. And what they are doing is essentially training, I mean, unless you have the rhetoric of Chrysostom, which most men don't, (laughs) unless what you're doing is you're poorly strategizing. So what you have to do, uh, and I'm borrowing this from a little line that I think Wilson used in one of his books, uh, what you have to do is to make your time efficient. So what we do in our home essentially is a catechism question, a prayer, and a dinner conversation. And that can be done in a consistently without demanding too much. But the idea here is you're having conversations, which means, back to the earlier thing I said about worship, is you're, you're shaping the imagination and you're allowing your family to be simultaneously strategizing by thinking and adding ethical categories to the household. So you're having a conversation with your home And dad, who is the leader strategist, begins to put ethical dilemmas at the table. And now your oldest Mm. son is beginning to have to think through these ethical dilemmas. And dad is just there as a facilitator. And mom is there to help out as well. But you're training your offspring to think about how more accurately their arrows can pierce the kingdom of darkness. And you do that through strategizing through ethical dilemmas but also thinking through life at a, at a more a grander picture than narrow than a narrow vision for uh, the church for the home. Yeah, that is so huge. Uh, it made me think of two things, Yuri. And first of all, really the way that modern church has, I think I don't know if it sought to do it or it just ended up doing it. But I think as the household has fallen apart, really what the church did is try to replace yes, those roles. Yes. So we have youth group, and it's like, well, you don't need to be a father. Just send them to me, and I'll, you know, in fifteen, you know, half hour, fifteen minutes, every Sunday, I'll, I'll do all that heavy lifting, and you'll be safe. Well, we've clearly seen culturally that doesn't work, and so I think a lot of this worship model is it's really about structuring the church so that it's assisting the family in its roles, not replacing Correct. them, and so that that's really key here. The second thing, and it'll dovetail into the next question, I want to ask you. You were talking about moms doing dishes, and one of the things that strikes me is this is why we need biblical theology, because we need to understand what part of the story we're in. We need to understand what God is doing uh, in his work of taking dominion, that he's He's using us to be a part of that. Uh, we're part of the kingdom coming on earth, and it, it's so important because it gives life to these mundane, everyday tasks, right? We're, we're not just doing dishes. You know, if you're a dad, you're you're not just—maybe today you're filling out spreadsheets— but we're part of this greater mission of God, the Missio Dei, and we need to see ourselves properly in the story. So I guess just 
break down, if, if people aren't aware, what is biblical theology, and why is it so important to know where you're at in the story? Biblical theology is the unfolding of redemptive history in the scriptures. So biblical theology is not so much concerned with propositional categories. That's what systematic theology does. Biblical theology unfolds before us in this beautiful tapestry, the story of redemption. And it does it in a way that is, quote, liturgical, close quote, right? So it, it borrows rhythms and patterns. And so what you see, and I've argued this just recently uh, in one of my sermons, that uh, one of the problems of our day is we have lost touch with the first six days. And because the first mm. six days offer us a rhythm, a pattern, a typology for how all the other days of redemptive history from uh, Genesis 3 till the second coming of Jesus are going to unfold. Wow, yeah. And if we begin so th- this is an this is another another aspect here if we begin eric our anthropology in genesis chapter 3 we're going to see the world as this lost cause but if we begin our anthropology where the bible mm. begins in genesis 1 and 2 we're going to develop a biblical way of looking at redemptive history and we're going to see the sin in chapter 3 but we begin things where things ought to be and that's where christians ought to pursue where things ought to be, not where things have been lost. We pursue redemptive history. We pursue our role in redemptive history through the lens of how things were established by God in the garden. And then we move from there. Sin is there, but Christians must remember that the sin bearer has also come. We no longer live in the days of Malachi. We live in the days of of the new creation where Jesus has become our prophet, our priest, and our true king. And he makes us into all these things as we look at redemptive history. Man, that's so good. And, and especially as you were talking about early chapters in Genesis, I think I was talking to Rich Lusk about this on the podcast, and he mentioned, you know, part of the reason that we've dropped the ball culturally on the issue of sexuality is because we jettisoned a hi- historical creation view Right. So like with evolution, it's like, oh, well, you know, Adam, Eve, you know, were they real people? Is that sexuality really that important? And and when we're looking at it from the proper perspective, the the gospel is restoring people to that original calling. Right. So taking dominion, bearing fruit, uh, men and women in their God ordained roles, their natures, et cetera. That becomes hugely important. Um, What do you think? So you take that you take that story, say, of, you know, anthropology beginning Genesis 1, not chapter 3. You think about some of the things that that would apply to in the way that you engage the culture. Um, you look, Again, the sexuality issue, we have Roe v. Wade, it's all tied together. But I'm curious, where do you see that playing out in culture? The Bible begins with a very clear political worldview. Adam ate from the fruit of his labors, right? That's an economic theology. Adam was married to one woman. That is a sexual theology. Adam Adam communed Mm. with God. Well, that's covenant theology. Adam named the animals. That's dominion theology. Adam lived according to the seasons that God established. Well, that's a liturgical theology. And I'm just starting, man. I could could go on and on. (laughs) But all these elements from our understanding of uh, our economic theory, all these elements have come because... We have forgotten that Adam ate from the fruit of his labors. The fruit wasn't 
given to him without his labors. It came as a result of his labors. Our view of sexuality has come because we have treated the abnormal as if it were normal. We've treated the, hmm. uh, we, we view the initial marriage of man and the woman that was created, we view that as if that were an uh, one of the 17,000 options of sexuality, yeah. when that is the de facto understanding of sexuality. And I mean, don't even get me started of covenant theology, but all these principles apply. And, and some of these also are, I should say, they are devalued in our society because we have, we have changed the hierarchy of our loves. Uh, man has dominion over things, and we have changed the, the priority of these things by saying that things should have dominion over man. And so you can't establish a proper um, theology of the Imago Dei unless everything in it is its proper order. And that, of course, incidentally affects how we look at 1 Corinthians 11 through 14 in our understanding of hierarchies and placements and sexuality in the church. Who should do what? Well, all those things were already ordered for us and our attempts to reorder the things that were initially ordered is, uh, is our human attempt to do away with the original order. And I'm only 42, but I know a little bit about life. Every time men attempts to do that, we get a disordered economy, a disordered sexuality, a disordered uh, ethical and liturgical theology. So all these things are uh, clearly connected, but we, we need to begin where, where everything begins. Yeah, that's a really excellent point. Um, it gets to a question I want to ask you as we sort of wrap up here. One of the ways that reform folks, uh, one of the ways that reform folks have tended to apply this question of, okay, how do we, we take the law of God, we take what Scripture says, and then how are we going to do that work of applying it in culture um, is what we've seen with theonomy. This has been, I think, helpful in many ways, uh, but you and I were kind of talking about this on Twitter and I said, one of the things we've seen in the Theonomy post-mill camp is just a lot of these dudes who I would call the hyper-schismatic reconstructionist. So I guess my first question is, why do these guys exist? Why are they so attracted to our camp? What's going on? Yeah, there's a hyper-schismatic reconstructionist coming to a church near you. <laughs> yes, and right. That is a... Uh, that's a true danger. Again, it's a, it's a disordered truth, right? So um, people often can take a true thing and uh, the methodology or the principle of it can be disordered to such a way and such a manner that you no longer recognize the true thing. And that's that's a real danger. So there, there, you know, there, there are several factors involved here as I've thought about this issue over the years. Um, the one that comes to mind, I just had a chance to hear him here in Pensacola, is the uh, Jordan Peterson phenomena, you know? Uh, yeah. Jordan Peterson, and uh, and I encourage you also to, um, I can't remember the book right now, but it's a book edited on Jordan Peterson and one of the, my fellow board members of Theopolis, uh, Alistair Roberts, wrote a wonderful essay there. But the Jordan Peterson phenomenon uh, caused men all over the world to reconsider life and to reconsider what makes life meaningful. So Peterson... I know all your listeners probably know who he is, but just for recollection here, Peterson is a sort of quasi-secular prophet, prophet uh, trying to instill some sense of direction and purpose. And the majority of his hearers and listeners are men because they're the primary consumers on on YouTube where most of his material um, f- finds itself. Uh, and 
when you take that Peterson mentality of purpose and direction and leadership, when that mentality reaches Christians, let's say just hypothetically, dispensational Christians, uh, they what they realize at that point when it hits them to the heart, right? When they accept Peterson into their hearts, what happens there <laughs> is right. they realize they realize at that moment that uh, their escapist philosophy that brought them no theological and cultural satisfaction needs to go. And then they go online and they see the stuff Eric Kahn is uh, writing, the stuff other guys are writing, and then they come across, you know, good people like, uh, you know, the late Greg Bonson or my friend in California, Andrew Sandlin, or, you know, Captain Stay Out of Controversy, Doug Wilson, or or <laughs> right. even, you know, the late Rush Dooney that I've never had a chance to meet, but who died in 01, and then suddenly, and this, you, I don't know if your experience is the same, I'd love to hear your thoughts as well, suddenly what took them 30 years to see takes them one day to unsee. And then, and then, and, and then, man, what happens is they become sort of the social media apologist uh, for the 613 case laws in the Bible, and they carry around the biggest copy of Rush Dooney's Institutes of Biblical Law they can get. And so they make enemies of everyone, they offend everyone, and they drive pastors like me absolutely insane with their uh, with their zealotry. They want to change everything overnight, no matter who suffers in the wake of their passion, no matter what uh, havoc they bring to the local church. And I uh, have done some counseling for other pastors. There's some some ways to um, identify these kinds of guys, um, but you know, if you're interested, I'd be happy to talk about it. But uh, any follow-ups there? Uh, by the way, what has what has been your experience, Eric? Any any thoughts there? Oh man, is I mean, you're you're spot on. I mean, so really, what we see is you know, and I've seen it in multiple places too. That's kind of the weird thing. But you, you'll get a guy like I, I've seen guys who are like one minute it's Joel Osteen, the next minute they have read Rush Dooney, and the next minute they're calling their pastor a heretic, <laughs> and. It's just bizarre stuff. Like you know, um, we we've called it like drawing the circle of orthodoxy around your own feet, um, not having like an awareness that you came to this position five seconds ago. You you probably are not being wise when you're on social media anathematizing everyone who yesterday you thought they were great and today they're heretics. Um, we've had them show up in Sunday school. You know, and it's it's stuff like well, you know, you have unrepentant murderers in your congregation. And we're like, uh, where? <laughs> and they're like, well, you have people who served in the military. They're unrepentant murderers, and they should be stoned tomorrow. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. Uh, well, yeah, there, there's some issues that we'll have to work through. The other one is um, we had uh, some some police officers in our church, and one of the same dudes, you know, he said, uh, he's like, well, you've got people who are committing kidnapping on a regular basis. And they deserve to be punished according to the book of Leviticus. And, and and the other one I would say is like this principle you were talking about where, you know, part of what we talk about with post-mill dominion theology is, look, God has time. And we're loving people. We're doing it in a way that is hopefully winsome in the right biblical sense of winsome. Yet people are like, you know, well, I took it upon myself to go to the woman who just came to our church yesterday, hasn't been in 10 years, and she's a public school teacher, and I told her that she's a whore for the state. And it's like, 
Oh, please, why? Oh, my. You know, and, and so, you know, pastorally, we've actually seen people, you know, quit their jobs and women go home and love their families and stuff like that. But it's this idea that it has to be now overnight. So, yeah, yeah, it has to be right now. But but I have to know right now, Yuri, yeah. I have to know, how do you identify these people? <laughs> well, I, I think I think you do you do test their loyalties. And I think mm. there, there are questions you can ask. And, and I've been doing this long enough where most often, within five minutes, I have a pretty good sense of what direction they're going. What are the things that consume them? Now, you shared a few kind of uh, interesting experiences. I had one uh, during the COVID season where someone came to our congregation and within five minutes, he was condemning anyone who took the vaccine as a, uh, a heretic of the state and somebody who could no longer be trusted as a Christian. Well, you know, every congregation is going to differ. Wow. In, in, now, anybody who has read anything I've written has a, a very healthy sense of where I lean on these issues. However, there are also issues of, um, um, of conscience that show up in your congregation. And so one way to test it is how do certain people that come to your congregation view others in the congregation. So let's say you have a family that has uh, that is in the public school, but they have come to your congregation and they have found the things there to be healthy for them. Well, how is that first conversation with that person? Well, my desire would be to draw them into the beauty of what we do rather than damage their minds by acting as if everything they've ever done in life has been an incredible waste, and they're leading their children to hell right now. If that were the application, everything you and I have talked about redemptive history is completely mute. It has no, no bearing at all in this conversation. But interestingly enough, families that have had their kids in public school because of, uh, of ignorance or because they were just thinking through these issues, if they grow into the vision you're laying out Sunday after Sunday through various uh, sweet conversations around the dinner table with good wine, through through a helpful dialogue, through the years, through the months and through the years, these families end up becoming the most loyal to the vision of the church long term. So we have to begin thinking through these issues as John Frame would say, every theology must first and foremost be pastoral theology. And the, hmm. the opposite of that is a theology that does not draw people closer to you but drives them away. And when they're driven away, Eric, what usually happens is they carry that one or two experiences with them wherever they go, and they damage the very cause you seek to defend. Oh, it's so huge. And I, I think pastorally, then, it becomes our responsibility to, to like, I want to protect the flock from this yes. person. <laughs> you know, they, they, it depends on the degree, but as you said, they can be troublers of Israel. <laughs> it also reminded me of something that uh, Jim Jordan said, that we, we were asking questions about liturgy. And making changes in the church, and he and we're like, how fast do you implement change, etc. And it was just such a pastoral moment for us, like pastors being pastored. But he said, your people need to know how much you love them. That's what they need to know first, how much you love them. And I, it, you know, it was a good check because you know all of us, you can you can read something, you get cage stage about it, you want to see change immediately, and you've you've got to pastorally remember the people. And it is it is really hard. I think about our own lives, like you know, going to covenant renewal worship for the first time. I was in shock, and so I can imagine if somebody had been like, "Well, you're an idiot if you don't get this." We were like, 
rather than recognizing, no, I understand. This is a shock to the system. We love you. Here's some good brisket, <laughs> and uh, it's going to be yeah. okay, Eric. You know, that's basically what happened to me. Yeah. So I, I think that's really good. It, it gets to the last question I want to ask you as we wrap up, Yuri. Something that you do on Kuiperian Commentary is, is really, I think, about engaging cultural issues, right? Whether it's Roe v. Wade, whether it's, you know, physical bodies and how pastors and other men take care of their bodies within the church, et cetera. Uh, but I want to ask you kind of what your approach has been, because you've been somebody who's actually addressed uh, a lot of the societal, cultural, political issues. What are some of the sort of, I guess, your principles for how you decide, I'm, I'm going to deal with this, versus I know a lot of pastors are just saying, you know, I don't talk politics, let's not talk politics. Uh, we just never deal with the really uh, controversial issues. So how do you wade through that? Well, you know, the first thing to keep in mind is that uh, the things I've written uh, especially the last few years, um, didn't come because I was a, a happy graduate of seminary. That wasn't my first year into pastoral ministry. Right? There, there's a sense in mm-hmm. which the pastor must uh, earn his shepherding garments. And, and that comes when you visit their children in the hospital when they just got a concussion. That comes when you bury grandma that comes when you minister to them through relational difficulties. So one of the things that happened, this is my 14th year here at Providence in Pensacola. One of the things that happened during COVID is that I went from quoting a few things on, on Facebook to writing full-length articles on Facebook almost every day for two-plus years. And before yeah. that, and I think I was sharing this with uh, either Brian Sauvé or um, David uh, Chocolate Knock, but I had, I had a very small presence before that. But when I began to write more thorough posts that dug very deeply into the current issues of the day, people began to interact, and suddenly there were folks reading my material in a consistent and substantive way. And it went very quickly from about you know 2,000 people on Facebook to... 4,500 to 5,000. And I know that there are, you know, social media skeptics out there. And some of them, you know, they've, as I said before, they've kind of embraced Wendell Berry in their hearts. And there may be a... I don't have a computer. Yeah, there may be a small dimension of goodness to that. And, uh, you know, I, I tried my life of uh, flip phone for a little bit. Uh, didn't work. But the reality is that social media is where the big conversations are happening. Now, you know, it, it may be because of old-fashionedness, but, you know, people today, how, whatever the skeptics think, people today are not, the majority of people are not getting their news through daily delivery of uh, New York Times in their front yard. They're getting their news. Yeah. The majority of conversations I have are with people who, who send me links to something they saw on Twitter or in their, federal, uh, in their, uh, their Facebook feed. You know, so my question at the end of the day is, why shouldn't the priests who lead the people of God, right, priests in very general uh, Protestant terms, who lead the people of God in worship, why should they not have a voice in these conversations that are happening in society? Why should we be quiet while our people are getting their interpretations from others? So uh, I have attempted to sort of speak to cultural, liturgical, ecclesiastical issues with as much humor and as much clarity as I can muster so that people can have uh, can be shocked by the content but also realize that what we're discussing are sobering issues in our day and that we can no longer remain in the Keller-esque political middle but we must 
take a stand in the political worldview established in the first six days of creation. Yeah, and you bring up such an important point, I think, is I noticed this pastoring and being an elder in a church was this stuff is shaping our people every day. So they get, you know, the pastor for, you know, 45 minutes or whatever on a Sunday morning, and then all week I noticed I'd be on Facebook and I'd see all all my people were sharing Desiring God and Tim Keller and the Gospel Coalition. So they're taking their cues for how to engage socially and culturally from these guys. And uh, uh, that's really why I started as well. It was this kind of pastoral need to say, look, our, our people need something better. You, you know, and we have good resources through like Canon Plus and, and Doug Wilson and a lot of those guys. I think they've really amped up their game too in the last two years because I think a lot of us realize, Pastor Brian Sauve says this to me all the time, but he's like, listen, Twitter, like it or not, Twitter is the Agora. Like that is the marketplace of ideas right now. And so that's really a lot of times where we need to engage and interact with people. I was skeptical, too, in the beginning. I was like, you know, I just want to read my Wendell Berry and Eugene Peterson and, you know, live in my countryside, you know, Montana Ranch or whatever, and just watch the sunset. But it's like, no, I'm going to have to spar and wrestle with these ideas um, in a very real way that's meaningful to our people. Because the reality is, look, they're going to Tucker Carlson. And I think a lot of it is because the church and people in the church have been starved for meaningful content that helps them engage and interact with the events of the day. Right. You're absolutely right. Um, you know, human beings are shaped to follow after priesthoods. Some desire the priesthood of Adam. Some desire the priesthood of Melchizedek. And Christians also desire the priesthood of Jesus Christ, ultimately. And if anything, the gospel of Jesus Christ was the most public of all gospels. And so if, if that is the case, then I think uh, pastoral voices, elder voices need to be engaged in, that, in these conversations. Uh, otherwise, um, it's not like the people are going to say, well, if my pastor's not speaking, therefore I remain neutral. It doesn't work that way. Right. They're going to find a priest to follow. And in, in my, my humble opinion, I think it is always a better approach when the local priesthood has a voice and the local people. Yeah, absolutely. Keep it local. I love that. Well, Yuri, thank you so much for joining us on this episode. Definitely encourage people to check out the Kuiperian Commentary. You've also got podcasts. Any other places we can check out to find your work? I have this interesting little endeavor, which is a a dream of mine for a long time. It's this little podcast called The Perspectivalist. And um, so far, all seven of my followers are really enjoying it. And uh, (laughs) Soon to be eight. Soon to be eight. eight. Okay, very good. Uh, eight is good because eight is a new creation in the Bible. So I'm, I'm uh, excited about things to come. But you can find the Perspectivalist on uh, any major uh, social media audio platform. And um, I, I kind of, it's my way of sort of um, inculcating my inner John frame. And that's, uh, it's, it's a big part of my ministry. So I'm, uh, that's a little endeavor that I have ongoing. Awesome. Well, we'll definitely encourage people to check that out and we'll include links in the show notes. Yuri, thanks again for joining us. My absolute pleasure, Eric. Thank you. Man, what a great interview, right? That was that was really amazing. We were, we were talking about uh, Yuri just has presence and gravitas. He's got that king energy he does. that he always brings whenever I hear him talk. And so, Yuri, thank you so much for giving us your time. You know, we were we were one of the things that we were discussing even in the cold open as you heard that brutal story of the Aztecs' false demon god worship. And what's amazing, Dan pointed out that actually this little detail in the story that you kind of can almost pass over, and it's where they discovered this site, was basically underneath a cathedral. 
So, so here, here's the picture that you get. And this was not accidental. The, the church showed up with their missionaries and they started colonizing this area. And, and they were like, oh, heck no. This is a demon temple. Look at all these skulls. So they smashed them up. They buried them. And then they built a cathedral on top. That's right. Based. That's like the based. ultimate king energy, Dan. Yeah. Ugh. So so what's crazy is, you know, I, I went to public school. And so I'm learning about the Spanish conquistadors and like how Cortez and them, they were the the most evil human beings that had ever walked planet Earth. Right. And then as I read about the Aztecs and, and, and the point of like the liturgy and worship that the Spanish had come out of, mm. and then they go into the Aztec, you know, people with their demon gods and their demon worship and and the utter disregard for human life. It, it, well, like when you were reading that, I was thinking, man, uh, this is hard to even fathom. Yeah. That somebody would think that that was okay. To women and children. Yeah, and it's weird because I, I kind of grew up with the like Pocahontas, uh, <laughs> yeah, the dances in- with wolves culture. So we're like indigenous people are naturally just wonderful, peace loving. Then you read Paint that and you're with like, with all the colors of the wind. <laughs> it's a song of your people. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, my people were much more peaceful than the Aztecs. I don't know if that's saying much, but <laughs> it, it, it was still better. But yeah, you grow up with this uh, public school, Dan, right there with you. Yeah, and uh, yeah, now. Hearing those stories, you can understand why they actually yeah. were like, no, this is, we're not Yeah, every aspect this. of their life is saturated with the worship of the one true and living God. And then yep. they show up in a place and they're like ripping the hearts out of living people. Yeah. Uh, men, women, and children. Ugh. And you come across this and then they're eating their bodies on occasion. And you're yeah. like, these people, there's only one just mm. punishment for this. Yeah, you know, if, it's if, so. Exactly. Anyway. It's like, you know, the Canaanites. You and, and this is this is really one of the ways that you can tell this episode. This is one of the ways you can tell the story of history is the story of the worship of the living God in uh, conflict with the worship of the false God, whatever shape the false God happens to be conformed to in that moment. What happens? Well, the people of God confront this culture of demon worship, which is always a culture of death. Every single time you find demon worship, you find the worship of anything that is not God you find a culture of death. Did you what, just say Planned Parenthood? Exactly, exactly, Eric. And and what what do the people of God do? Well, they conquer and they they conquer by worship. And actually, here's the glorious part: is that we conquer through conversion, even. And so you take like this is this is one of the, those thoughts I think is just so glorious from a story like the Aztecs is that not only they, a lot of people needed killing like let's be honest a lot of, a lot of those you know they needed to make war with these people and utterly put them under their feet because they were just a disgusting you know bloodthirsty people and yet there are there are ancestors of I, I guarantee you there are ancestors of Aztec priests who are worshiping Christ today yeah guarantee you why because the Christian worship is potent it actually changes things. Our God is the true God. He, you know, you can build your fake mountain, your fake temple, your ziggurat, and you can put an Aztec priest on the top. But our, our God is still seated, His Christ on Zion's mountain, His holy hill, and He's still reigning, and He is converting the nations. That's right. I love the tie-in too with Boniface. Right, we're talking about chopping things down, uh, rebuilding God's cathedrals in place, and Dan, that's exactly what the conquistadores did. Yeah, yeah, they took a green grove of absolute horror. Yep. And then they erected a temple to the true and living God, or a cathedral to the yeah. true and living God. Yeah. Well, thanks for listening in on this episode of the King's Hall podcast. Again, we would encourage you uh, to make sure that 
you get worship right at the foundations, right? That you get worship right with the people of God on the Lord's day. You gather with God's people. You lift up your voices in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. You lift your eyes to Christ. And through that sight of him, you know, find yourself conformed from one degree of glory to another into the same image. That you take that worship and it suffuses your dinner tables and your homes and your evenings with your children. You would teach your children the songs of God's church and the scriptures of God's people. That you would repent of your sin quickly, worship God in the light. And and, and we'd, we'd point you to one of our sponsors for this season, of course, Reformation Heritage Books. Their Family Worship Bible Guide is a great resource, dads, if you're looking for a way to get... Uh, this happening in your home. It's got devotional thoughts on every chapter of the Bible. That's a good starting point. Pick up a resource like that and and get to work in your families so that you can see not only your own life conform to Christ, but faith press downstream in your own legacy. And remember that this is a long project, Festin Alente. Make haste slowly as you go about all of these things, but we hope that uh, you'll tune in next time to the King's Hall Podcast. Thanks for listening.